Hey guys, Juart here with Hit The Apex Podcast. Thank you for joining me for another week of exciting podcast content. <laughs> How's everyone doing? I hope everyone is well. Uh, this is my first full week of like, I wouldn't call it isolation because I can still go out and have a walk, go grocery shopping and all that. But I guess, yeah, work, um, a workless week this week, the first one. So, so far, so good. I haven't lost my mind, <laughs> kept myself pretty busy. And as, as I said, there was heaps of things I was planning on doing anyway in this time that I would not be um, at my real life physical job. Um, so got started with the racing revisitations uh, articles that I'll be I'll be working on in this time. So I had a look back at the 2010 F1 season to start off with and um, publish the first part of that. Second part, hopefully, I'll um, have up there tomorrow. Uh, the photos, as well as I said, you done a bit of that and mainly just cleaning around the house. I busted out the steam mop this morning. That was exciting. Um, after a uh, a pretty fun podcast with Dino uh, on the Regen podcast. We were up early for this one, um, <laughs> a little earlier than I would have liked, but um, just for the time differences and everything, it was uh, it all worked out. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm getting too used to getting up at 9, 10 a.m. every morning, whereas normally I'd be up at 6 anyway for to get ready for work. So I'll talk a bit about the... Um, 2010 F1 season on this podcast, bit of uh, the E-Series as well, supercars, it's become kind of a Wednesday night tradition now, and um, some other media as well, which seems to be what um, what's happening usually um, on this show. Last week it was all about Star Wars, a bit of music as well, but um, getting into Netflix's new series on Netflix, The Last Dance, uh, which I mentioned on Regen Podcast as well, which you can listen to when it is available. So, kicking it off, I guess, yeah, looking at the, looking back at the 2010 F1 season, so it was quite enjoyable watching some of those races, watch the season review, uh, did a lot of in-depth reading, you know, stats and all that sort of fun stuff that I'm sure that uh, everyone really likes to spend their days <laughs> looking at. You know, I even busted out the, the notebook, the little A5 notebook, which I haven't written in for maybe a while, easily over a year now or two years. So took, you know, quite a few pages of notes for um, what I was going to compose and then ended up with three and a half thousand words. And that, you know, is being a bit selective as well as far as how I'm going to go it like it wasn't you know I wasn't trying to do like a a race report all in you know 20 or 19 race reports in one in one big article it was more like okay so this is how this has affected the ultimate outcome of the championship or you know him you know not finishing this race is going to have uh, adverse reaction for the rest of the year or you know this guy had a, a bad half first half of the season but in the second half he's really come back so it kind of all comes together as one cohesive narrative so hopefully uh, if you any of you guys have read it uh, you've enjoyed it and then yeah part two coming out to as by friday hopefully anyway 60, it was the 60th championship season for F1, so given that this year we were supposed to be celebrating seven years, it's it's a decade ago now, and it's kind of hard to believe that, you know, 2010, such, a, such an exciting season was that long ago. It shows how much has happened in between there, you know, we've had that big change of regulations going over to the hybrid turbos, and then of course evolution of that with the um, aero package in 2017, so quite a lot has happened in the meantime and you know we've had drivers come and go as well so seeing names that you know you don't see on the grid anymore um, in 2010 was interesting even guys like you know Kamui Kobayashi or Sebastian Buemi who've gone on and done bigger and better things in you know sports cars and Formula E um, Jaime Hogaswari who's you know musician now Adrian Sutil I guess 
who knows what he's doing these days. Same with uh, Tonio Liuzzi. Uh, so a lot of guys there on the grid, you know, you see them make their debuts or you see them as prospects and then they kind of disappear into nothing. So I guess that's kind of the the beast that is motorsport not just F1, you know, you can be the hot thing one moment, but then next, you're not, and um, it just shows you how tough a game it is to survive, so, yeah, you know, close title race as well, you know, four points in it at the end of the day, um, at the title decider in Abu Dhabi, Sebastian Vettel, of course, winning the first of four world championships, four in a row, too, Um, who would have thought that that would have been the start of that little Red Bull dynasty that they've had there, and of course uh, the Constructors win that they had in um, Brazil too, so Red Bull and Vettel winning four back-to-back after that. Got to say though, coming into that year, you wouldn't have picked Vettel, I mean this is just based off my memories 10 years ago, I wasn't really looking at Sebastian Vettel as someone who I would have picked for the championship, you know, kind of typically you go for the more experienced hands, so by the time we got to Abu Dhabi, it was, okay, Fernando Alonso, he's in the best position here, Um, and Mark Webber, he, you know, given his experience over Vettel, you would have picked him, but then he just, Seb just slipped under the radar, basically, ended up uh, winning the whole thing, uh, wrong strategy decision from Ferrari's part, and also for Mark Webber, who, you know, started fifth in the race, so he was already on the back foot while his teammate was on pole, and Alonso, he only needed to finish on the podium or something like that to, to be champion, because he was leading the standings when they came into the final race, so they kind of just lost it with that pit stop, I think, you know, reacting to Red Bull's pit stop for Weber rather than keeping their eyes forward and saying, okay, we've got to shadow what Vettel does. So as a result, you know, the um, infamous 2010 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix where you had Fernando Alonso hold up behind Vitaly Petrov in the Renault. That's another name that um, dropped off the grid in a few years after 2010. It was good to see him on the podium in 2011, uh, the Australian Grand Prix. So it didn't come to nothing, his uh, short-lived F1 career, but I guess Petrov will probably be more remembered for uh, holding up Alonso and, um, to an extent, Weber as well in that um, Abu Dhabi race. So, yeah, that's that's how it all got lost for those guys, and for Alonso especially, you know, and after that it was kind of, oh, you know, he came this close and, you know, we'll probably see him do it again in a couple of in next year or the year after or whatever but then we all know how that panned out 2011 didn't really come together for Ferrari or for Alonso and then 2012 it was just basically Alonso versus Red Bull or the and the rest of the grid you know him taking a uh, dog dog of a car to you know finishing within three points of the championship at the end of the at the end of the season so you know, 2012 is probably, you know, his best season as a driver, but, um, you know, 2010 as well, you know, he had all the pieces there to, to win it, but I guess a a weak first half of the season could be, I guess, you could blame that and say, look, you know, he should have been winning more races early on, you know, we saw him come out and win in Bahrain the first race of the year, then it went all the way to Germany before he won another one, and you can argue that the Germany win was kind of manufactured because that was uh, the scene of Fernando is faster than you, uh, Felipe Massa having to move aside and let his teammate through. I mean, Alonso was quicker anyway, so he could have probably found a way past him, but rather than go through the effort to actually do it in a racing situation, as you would expect... They just said, oh, yeah, Felipe, get out of the way. So, you know, Ferrari typical with their um, team orders and everything. But the second half of the season was a lot stronger for Alonso. You know, back-to-back wins in in Monza, then Singapore, then the race in Korea as well, which was one to never forget where you had Weber crash out, you had Vettel crash out as well. Um, And it was basically the race that potentially killed Red Bull's championship, well, it killed Mark Webber's championship because um, 
he made the mistake there and he could have easily had the points to put him in a bit of better position for the final race in Abu Dhabi, which he didn't. Vettel, unfortunately, you know, didn't score either in that race. I think he retired 10 laps from the end of the race with a, um, I think it was an engine failure or something, but he got the job done in Abu Dhabi when his rivals faltered, so you've got to say that he was the better driver in that situation. But yeah, Alonso, he was on it in the second half of the season. You could say the only mistake that he made in the second half of the season that he made, not his team, was Spa. So Spa ended up retiring uh, DNF, that proved costly towards the end of the race when it was a bit wet and slippery. So he, like Weber, made a mistake um, at that race. Weber in Korea, of course. So that could be attributed to Alonso losing the championship. But then, you know, so can the pit stop in Abu Dhabi um, and being stuck behind Petrov for the rest of the race. So And Yas Marina traditionally is not the best circuit to overtake at the at the best of times so you know they should have taken that into account but you know what's happened has happened and whereas Alonso now still stuck on two world championships in F1 unfortunately and uh burning relationship with and uh burning relationships with uh engine manufacturers too so that's uh that's a whole other story if you want to talk about Fernando Alonso and Honda and how that stopped him from other opportunities in the world uh, too, especially IndyCar. That's uh, that's that one. So, what was more intriguing about 2010 was the face of the title race kept changing almost race by race. So you had Red Bull who were fast and qualifying, raising a lot of eyebrows, of course, with um, you know the clever little things that they had on their car at the time. You know, this is sort of the the beginning of the blown diffuser situation, and McLaren had their own F duct as well that was um, helping them get a get out in front in the races. Um, but Red Bull were fast and qualifying. I think they had like six poles or seven poles in a row or something all the way from Bahrain to Turkey. And then Canada was the first race that um, Red Bull wasn't on pole. So between Weber and Vettel, they were really quick. Um, then McLaren probably better in the races in the first half of the season at times. Um, you know, it seemed like they just threw away certain situations. So... You know, we had Jensen Button master the wet conditions in Australia and China, um, but then second half of the season completely came away from him, and him as well just has a very limited window where he can get to grips with a car, which is a bit annoying at times because, you know, the car might be a quick car, but he just can't find the right window to get a good, comfortable setup for him, and that's probably cost him, you know, numerous good results at times, I remember 2012 as well, there was a lot um, before, I guess, McLaren's development direction changed and took um, took a turn for the worst, I think even Button's just ability to get that car in the sweet spot was a little bit challenged. Um, and at times, you know, of course, Lewis Hamilton, still young then and with one world championship uh, from 2008, you know, he still had a lot of his insecurities as well, which, you know, um, came from, you know, the team making certain decisions uh as far as you know, strategy was concerned, or favouring Button over him. So Button, of course, it was his first year with McLaren, reigning world champion from Braun. But um, you know, Australia was an example of that. You know, where they pitted Hamilton close to the end of the race uh, while he was catching Button, and he was in third, and that cost Hamilton a podium position. But um, at the end of the day, they say that the tyres were fading too much, and they had to pit him, otherwise he could have come under threat anyway. So that was one of those things and yeah you know you look at Hamilton back then and you look at him now and say there's a there's a big difference I mean it was a quick driver who won in 2008 and won the championship but what we've got now is like a complete package you know he's wise he's quick he um, is just yeah one of those drivers that you got to say wow greatest uh, or one of the greatest of all times then for Red Bull, it was kind of uh, 
up and down in the first half of the season with their races. You had the highs of the Monaco Grand Prix, uh, 1-2 finish, uh, Mark Webber victorious there, to the lows of the Turkish Grand Prix at the next race. So, you know, the start of where basically the beginning of the soured relationship between the two guys when they were together at the team. Of course, that's all different now, as we've talked about um, on the podcast a long time ago. But, yeah, the incident in Turkey, it was like Vettel had nowhere to go. Weber was he in the wrong? Did he kind of close the door on, on Seb? Stuff like that, you know, it's been debated, talked about a lot. You know, and then, of course, Mark being in a unfavorable position there at Red Bull where, you know, Red Bull wanted to favor Verstappen, not Verstappen, sorry, Vettel. God, Verstappen would have been like one years old then or something. I know that's not true. <laughs> um, yeah, when Red Bull wanted to favor Vettel, Helmut Marco was very vocal about it as well. So, you know, that basically was the beginning of the souring in their relationship. And then, of course, what happened at Silverstone with the number two driver jibe. So, Weber ended up winning the race, um, or before the race actually, Vettel crashed in um, practice and then in qualifying was given the updated front wing that actually was on Weber's car and uh, because Vettel had crashed and damaged the other one, ended up giving it to Seb, which made Mark very happy of course, <laughs> um, and he kind of gesticulated it in the press conference, slammed the uh, glass of water on the table. I think the team are very happy with the uh, decision that they've made. <laughs> you could cut the tension with a with a knife, you know. It's like you know, knife through butter. It was that. It was that palpable. And then in the race, I guess Mark responded the best way he could. He went out and won. Um, Seb, of course, getting tangled with I think uh, Hamilton at the start or something, and ended up getting a puncture. So Weber winning the race. Um, not bad for a number two driver, he said on the team radio, and um, he still drove a really good season. I think it was Weber's best season for Red Bull, and arguably the best chance he had to to win a championship. Um, twenty twelve was a different story because Weber kind of just dropped off halfway through the year or went into Vettel's court. But twenty ten, where you know it was kind of still on an equal playing field between the two until you know the middle point of the season and even after then he was um still on the podium and stuff like that so yeah Vettel's uh, sorry Weber's best chance to win a championship I think in 2010 and then you had other kind of highlights of the year you know the new teams that didn't really do much I mean I said in the um I said in part one of the article that in one of the first practice sessions in Bahrain you had Timo Glock in the Virgin racing car had uh, its wheels come off and it was kind of a metaphor for what was going to happen with those three teams. Um, Virgin of course became Marussia and then Mana Marussia towards the end of the towards the um, end of its tenure you had the Lotus team owned by uh, Malaysian group and then they became Caterham uh, and of course the Hispania team her HRT and they only lasted I think two more seasons after that so you know it just goes to show you that uh it's a tough game to get into f1 and just being underprepared or whatever is not gonna cut it so i guess the way haas have done it when you look at more recently a new team coming in it's probably more safe to do it that way but even that like a lot of people have questioned their model and said oh you know they're basically they haven't built their own car they've basically just gone or gone to the shop and bought pieces off the shelf or whatever and just put it together that's it so there's that part but then also if you want more teams you're going to have to find a sustainable way to to run a championship to allow teams to compete and to compete fairly as well and I guess a lot of the discussion at the moment as well with um, financial crisis crises being upon a number of sporting organisations all over the world or just organisations all over the world, you know, ways to uh, drastically reduce costs in Formula One because given what's going on and how, you know, money is being lost by by the hour or whatever or, you know, by not going racing and that sort of stuff, they're going to have to find a more sustainable way to, to do this and to find a budget, you know, to cap the budget as well. They 
said $175 million, perhaps they've got to lower it given what's happened now. So that's all food for thought anyway for for what's going to happen next. But going back to 2010, you know, it was good to see some new teams on there, some new drivers, even though they weren't, I guess, the most impressive. But then we had guys like Nico Rosberg, you know, the... 2016 world champion Nico Rosberg back then who was still very much in the early part of his career he joined Mercedes Mercedes of course taking over from Braun GP that year and uh, lured Michael Schumacher out of retirement as well so Rosberg pretty much showing up Schumacher that whole year or even in the first couple of races like Rosberg ended up on the podium three times which was which was good and we all kind of had our eyes on this guy it's like yeah yeah you know this uh this Rosberg guy he seems pretty good um and then little did we know that he would uh end up partnering Lewis Hamilton from 2014 and uh dominating F1 for the next few seasons or until now but Rosberg retired of course after his title success in 14 um sorry at the end of 16 Robert Kubitzer as well another guy who uh really starred that season making the switch to Renault of course taking over from Fernando Alonso and uh getting three podiums that year as well which was really impressive and unfortunately that was you know where Kubitzer had that meteoric rise after 2010 there was that big fall too with the um terrible career or almost career-ending accident that he had in rallying and you know we find out afterwards that there was a contract for Ferrari on the table as well that he would have partnered Fernando Alonso there at Scuderia but um, what could have been you know with with Robert Kubitzer so that was one of the sad stories to come out of the end of that season heading into 2011 because I'm sure his presence would have been great on the 2011 grid but um yeah, that's just that's just the way the things that work. I guess, unfortunately, and Schumacher as well, just terrible. You know, it wasn't a seven-time world champion that we had on the grid. It was like, what, what the hell's going on? And you know, uh, Hungary with that uh, incident with when he almost put Rubens Barrichello, his old Ferrari teammate, into the wall on the into the pit wall was like, wow, that's very amateurish. <laughs> and Rubens himself was like does this guy have a death wish or something you know does he want to try and get me up there you know pointing to heaven or referring to to the heavens so yeah it was it was not the most impressive return for Schumacher at least in 2012 like 11 was again very very average or below average at least in 2012 he got the podium he got the uh the phantom pole position course because he had a grid penalty to take so he actually didn't get to start the Monaco Grand Prix on pole but uh, it was a bit better than uh, the other two seasons so and of course thoughts are always with with Schumacher as well with um, with whatever situation or whatever condition he's in at the moment um, 2013 late 2013 that uh, skiing crash that he skiing accident that he had um, it's just yeah kind of forget about it um or you don't really talk about it much but then you do have it in the back of your mind um that this has happened and this is the situation so you know hopefully Michael is still fighting and uh whatever condition he is we uh wish him very well so a very memorable season was 2012 and um quite fond of it actually I think it was was it no no 2009 was probably the first season that I watched fully like you know watching every qualifying watching every race you know just intently you know I was always keeping tabs on the races before or not watching them live and I think from 2010 is when I watched uh like I haven't missed watching a race live since 2010 so that's um that's my little personal brag for this week it's nothing to be very proud of it's not um I was talking talking about it with someone a couple of weeks ago (laughs) we're like you know that's not that's not at all a pickup line or anything like that so yeah don't worry I'm not gonna break that one out or anything so I've watched every race F1 race since 2010 I've watched them live yeah no that's not very impressive at all it just means I've got nothing better to do (laughs) 
getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning for the Canadian Grand Prix. Mind you, which is on a public holiday. So that's that's all good. It's the ones that are in the US at the end of the year that, that are a killer. Especially Brazil because it's kind of in the middle. You know, it's not, you know, it's not fully morning like what I deem to be, you know, 6am where... I normally get up and get ready to go to work. It's like, okay, it's at 4am, so either I have a very early sleep or I sort of have half a sleep and then have another hour sleep after the race and then get ready to go to work. Um, but uh, who knows what that's going to look like this year. <laughs> have no clue at the moment. Anyway, what is going on is a lot of E-Series racing, a lot of um, eSports, which is good talked about supercars still going to talk about supercars because it's the it's the only one that's doing it right and i talked about it on regen podcast with dino earlier today as well um i think he seemed pretty impressed by the uh, product as well hopefully he gets to watch some more of it um they're going to have round four next week it's on every wednesday which is good you know getting into this regular schedule that it's on get around the TV, or you can watch it on Facebook or whatever, and it's just there, so this time we had wild cards, we had Simona Di Silvestro, who of course, up until last year, was racing with Kelly Racing in the Nissan Factory team, um, she left at the end of last year to return to Europe, of course, a reserve driver for Porsche in Formula E, we had Will Power as well, of course, the 2014 IndyCar champion, Indy 500 winner for Team Penske, wildcard for DGR Team Penske, and of course a couple of Super 2 uh, stars in Thomas Randall and Brody Kostecki, who are quite uh, prolific, I guess you could say, with the sim racing, and Thomas Randall apparently unveiled a, a facility or a business that he's been working on um, where you could go and do like driver training in a simulator, you know, with full movement feedback and everything. So that seems really cool. Um, <laughs> and Brody Kostecki, he was on it straight away. Like he qualified on the second row of the grid in the top 10 shootout. He missed out on the race one win to Shane Van Gisbergen, but then seemingly won the race, uh, the third race of the night uh, at the final corner um, with Scott McLaughlin going off. But. Craig Baird, the uh, driving standards observer, ruled that Kostecki made contact with Scotty and as a result uh, gave Brody the penalty and uh, Scotty was declared the winner. So Scotty, of course, still on top of the standings. A uh, bit of um, what comes around goes around because Scott got penalised in, I think, the first race where there was four drivers trying to negotiate the chase and uh, Scott kind of went off the track and put one on Will Power and I think as a result Andre Heimgartner was involved as well. So that was a bit of a uh, bit of a sad story. Kind of a flashback to 2016 Bathurst with what happened with uh, between McLaughlin, Jamie Wincup and Garth Tander. Um, Wincup punts McLaughlin off. McLaughlin's off going through cuts through the chase and tries to rejoin Wincup meanwhile has decided to slow down to let McLaughlin back in front of him but then Garth Tander arrives at full pelt um, who Wincup didn't see in the mirror and then as a result all three kind of crashed together at the same time and god it was it was heartbreaking at the time because I'm like oh this could be the year that McLaughlin wins in the Volvo you know the Volvo in its retro livery is going to win the race but um it didn't happen and also I was rooting for Garth Tander too because it was going to be his last year for the Walkinshaw team with HRT um and they had one Sandown um earlier that year as well uh got that photo of him and Luffy on the podium uh which is a good one I posted it ages and ages ago back in 2016 so if you follow me on instagram where i post all these racing photos you're gonna to have to trawl through all my photos to find that one so yeah but um between tander and mclaughlin unfortunately being punted out of the race it was a bit unfortunate and then of course uh wind cup got the penalty for it and in the end it was will davison and jonathan webb that one for the techno team so good good race that as always bathurst is thrilling and as we saw in the E-Series as well, it's just 
it's just Bathurst. It's just the place that makes racing interesting. So even with sim racing, it was it was chaos, it was carnage. But then at the end of the day, it was just it was really good racing, and we saw some good results. Fabian Coulthard won the reverse grid race as well, which was the second race of the night, and then of course, yeah, McLaughlin winning the third race. We learnt as well this morning, actually, that uh, for next week's race, um, which will take place on a couple of uh, American circuits, I forgot which ones they were, but um, hopefully Watkins Glen is on the roster. I really love that circuit on Forza Motorsport 7, and especially in a supercar, I really love doing the first you know, couple of corners in, in the V8 supercar, so hopefully Watkins Glen is one on there, but um, Joey Logano, the NASCAR champion, he's going to take part, we've also got um, Alexander Rossi coming in as well, which will be great, and of course he drove Bathurst last year, the Bathurst 1000 as a, as a wild card for Walkinshaw and Dreddy United, um, and that's part of a, a ride swap or a virtual ride swap that he and Chaz Mostert are doing. So Chaz is going to actually go and race in the uh, IndyCar E-Series this weekend and um, uh, Rossi will come over and do supercars next week. So it's it's really gaining a lot of traction, which is good to see. And Will Buxton, again, the, um, the F1 reporter or the F1, <laughs> you don't need to introduce him, you you already know who Will Buxton is, um, such a great guy, love his content, um, he tweeted saying that, you know, need to get Scott McLaughlin to come over and do the F1 E-Series or whatever, the um, virtual Grand Prix, with, to which McLaughlin replied, I think something like, hell yes or whatever, so that'll be interesting to see, to see go McLaughlin try that out and just with Dino before on, on Regen, we were talking about, or he asked me, is, is Scott McLaughlin good at everything he does, or does he win anything that he touches, and this will be the test, that if he can jump into the um, the F1 virtual series, and come out with a win, or a podium, or a good result, so we've already had one supercars driver go over and do that um, a few weeks ago, that was Andre Heimgartner, so a uh, high-profile entry like McLaughlin, that would be really cool, and, you know, McLaughlin just, again, absolute star of a driver, gun of a person, and um, really making a name for himself worldwide, and Lando Norris, he's going to be doing the IndyCar um, E-Series as well this weekend, so maybe um, supercars can try and lure Lando, <laughs> I think I said this last week, try and lure Lando into doing... Um, to racing a supercar that would be pretty cool i know a lot of people out there who would be um really interesting interested in seeing that so that's kind of the only live racing we can really commentate on at the moment um is the digital virtual stuff so going really well and um quickly while we're on that i just remember that uh today MotoGP, the new MotoGP game came out as well so i haven't got my hands on it just yet i think they've it's not complete as such, they haven't actually put the championship mode in there, because there's no championship at the moment, so I think they want to wait till something starts before they patch it in, or whatever, so I'm not really keen to pay for an incomplete game at the moment, but it does look really good, like graphics-wise, it looks, I think the last MotoGP game I bought was the Valentino Rossi game, which was 2016 or 2017 I think and you know it seems like what I've seen so far in the previews is that the graphics and everything are a big step forward so I'd love to get my hands on that at some point and play I mean I'm still playing F1 2019 um, in career mode up to the Belgian Grand Prix so I want to try and finish that career mode or just finish the the first year of the career mode win the championship um and then maybe do the f2 championship as well because there is an achievement that i want to unlock before we move on to f1 2020 which was announced last week i didn't talk about it on the podcast even though it was announced before i went on air but yeah it was going to be like a, a tribute to michael schumacher this year the um, 70th year of the championship and of course with a an array of Schumacher vehicles so they got the um the Jordan that he drove his first race a couple of his Benetton cars which we haven't seen Benetton 
uh, before in the classics mode and a couple of the Ferraris that they didn't already have in the game too so always excited for a new F1 game and in career mode you can actually now create your own team so you will be in charge of the 11th team on the grid get to choose your chief sponsor and your engine supplier and of course yeah you can race with uh, your own team against the uh, the grid of 20 drivers and the existing 10 teams so I think that'll be an exciting new addition it's like stuff that you know you would dream of having in an ultimate f1 game but you know of course they can only add so many new things every year so that I think is coming out in July so still a fair way away. Found it interesting too that they're bringing back split screen mode which you know I'm more of a split screen person than playing online multiplayer I mean I just find it a lot more fun if you have someone someone else there in the room with you to play like that it's just what I'm what I'm used to you know growing up playing four-player split-screen Mario Kart on (laughs) Nintendo 64 or even, you know, split-screen Forza Motorsport, Gran Turismo, um, to playing split-screen Halo on the Xbox. So it's just what I'm used to. I don't really do much, uh, play much online unless it's a a shooter these days. The racing stuff, I just, I just suck. (laughs) I, I, you know, and this is where, you know, when you hear critics of um, esports or is particularly sim racing saying oh you know you just it it's so easy you know i mean like anyone can do it kind of thing it's like actually no it it takes a bit of skill um i don't consider myself any good at it but it's hard like if you want to be on the same lap times as the real drivers are or the pro sim racers are and i haven't actually done you know i think the most sim game that i ever played was like Gran Turismo or something, um, Project Cars, I haven't played iRacing before, I want to get my hands on Assetto Corsa, but that's available for Xbox, because I don't have a gaming PC, I've just got a laptop, which, you know, barely can do Adobe Premiere and all that sort of stuff, so I can't really do any of the PC things, but even if I did, like, and let's say I had a budget, went out there, spent a couple of thousand dollars, built a sim kind of thing, it would take ages for me to be able to get into the same zone as the pros are, so for anyone who thinks that they could step in and do what they do, I'd like to I'd like to see you put your money where your mouth is, because yeah, I don't think it's that easy, I mean, someone like Jamie Wincup, for example, who is a seven-time champion in supercars and the real thing, um, and he's struggling with doing sim racing. Um, again, he struggled um, at Bathurst yesterday. So, not the easiest thing in the world to do. So, I don't think any of the criticism is fair. Um, what, as I've said before, what separates sim racing from other esports is that sim racing is actually the closest thing to the real thing than all the other stuff. So, games like FIFA or or your PC, you know, up. MMORPGs or whatever that uh, form a lot of the esports or the arena based shooters or whatever that's all done by gamepad or controller or keyboard and mouse whereas the physical input with you know steering wheel um, feedback of course and then you know even brake modulation as well like you can actually tune your brakes or whatever to or brake pressure and all that sort of stuff so it's very um, it's very in depth so I'd like to see anyone who wants to criticise sim racing to give it a go for themselves before they um, before they have a go or say, oh, it looks easy, I could do this with my eyes closed. Yeah, I would like to, to, to see you guys have a go, so give it a go. I, I'm going to come out and say, I've already said it, that I suck. So, yeah, probably need a lot of fine-tuning before I can do that. And I purely, at the moment as well, with the limited amount of wheel options for for Xbox that are in in my price range as well, it kind of rules me out of giving it a go. Like I've got a um, I managed to pick one up secondhand, um, Thrustmaster Ferrari, one of the Thrustmaster Ferrari ones that don't have force feedback. It's just horrible. Without force feedback, it's just you can't even 
use it because <laughs> I used to have a um, a Logitech uh, force feedback wheel which I was using for PlayStation and PC when I was playing the F1 games on PC so that was you know my kind of foray into into that sort of thing but um, for Xbox I just haven't been able to get my hands on a, on a proper wheel with force feedback and um, if I did then it would be a start to try and begin practicing this sort of stuff but um, yeah I've kind of hung up the cape there for, for now um, and just sticking to the gamepad see how we go be interested to see how Assetto Corsa plays with a gamepad I'm sure it's not recommended but I'll give it a go <laughs> unless I end up uh, getting gifted or something or they um, have a sale on steering wheels and I'm able to get um, an entry level force feedback wheel for the Xbox so that'll be interesting to see anyway moving it on now so as I said at the top of the episode that I started watching that series on Netflix, The Last Dance, um, done by ESPN. There's only two episodes available because they're going to release them on a weekly basis, every Monday I think it is. Um, and what it centers around is the 1990s Chicago Bulls dynasty, of course, one of the greatest sporting teams of all time, as uh, many people will profess, whether you like basketball or not, they're just one of the most successful teams, period. They won six championships across eight years, so they did it in two, three-year, um, or two lots of three, they they were able to do it, two three-peats, as they, as they say, and the actual story for this series as well as looking at you know the rise of Michael Jordan through college ball and of course through to getting drafted to the Chicago Bulls in the early part of his career and the players around him so like Scott Scotty Pippen of course who is the best number two available Dennis Rodman the enigmatic guard that he was sorry, forward, <laughs> enigmatic forward that he is, um, and all the other guys that were around him. It was good to see guys like Steve Kerr as well, who, of course, is the current head coach of the Golden State Warriors. Um, uh, the relationship between Phil Jackson and the uh, front office, of course. Phil Jackson, one of the most successful coaches in NBA history, winning, of course, the six rings with Chicago, and then, of course, another six with... Um, the Lakers, sorry, five with the Lakers. He's got eleven in total. My basketball history is a bit, uh, bit dusty, so <laughs> that's why I'm enjoying watching the series because it's uh, allowing me to learn new things about the NBA and um, about that particular pot time and everything as well. So, what the series predominantly focuses on, I guess, is the kind of the end of that era, so the last dance, as Phil Jackson said um, in his playbook, heading into the uh, nineteen the 1997-98 season, of course, the last dance for the Dream Team, um, kind of the, the fallout between uh, Coach Jackson, of course, and the front office, so the general manager, Jerry Krause, who's kind of portrayed in this as a bit of a villain villainous character, even though from all accounts he's not he's meant to be or he was meant to be a very a nice person but it was just his kind of he he got a bit of small man syndrome when you know the Bulls started getting successful and they were attributing attributing it more to the team and to the coach rather than to him and he given that he is the general manager is the one who built the team he got the players to surround Jordan when um you know in the 80s the Bulls were pretty woeful and um Jordan pretty much was carrying this team on his back I mean it was interesting and I think it was the first episode where you hear about a bit about that background and Jordan came into this team as the rookie uh, a clean rookie at that as well he wasn't involved in you know partying or drugs or um or drinking or anything like that and you know he recounted how he went into one of his teammates hotel rooms and they were in they're all the rest of the team were all in there you know they're all doing coke and um had girls in the room and everything whereas you know Jordan sought to avoid all that to try and keep a good image but also he wanted to be the best and you know being the best meant that you know he had to keep a clean clean um a clean attitude a um healthy attitude you know 
training as well very intently and you saw a glimpse of this in episode two in the 86 1986 playoffs when they do a flashback to that and uh even though they lost to the Boston Celtics in the first round um a Boston Celtic team with Hall of Fame players everywhere you know guys like Larry Bird and um Bill Walton and all that so against them they lost but Jordan had two sensational games that they portrayed in the in the show and it was like he did that all on his own and in the second game in particular um none of them could defend him <laughs> he was just unstoppable but the the Bulls still lost because you know of course they didn't have the the team around him to do that and that's of course when you know after that um Kraus started recruiting other players you know so Pippen came in from uh I think Seattle uh, it was um, Rodman as well they got in so they started building a team around him and of course Phil Jackson being the the integral piece as a coach too so 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 far in the two episodes it's been um, it's been pretty intense you know we've already had uh, a lot that's occurred a lot that I've learned as a result of watching it um, and of course the end game I guess is the fact that they win that sixth championship but how they get there with you know Scotty Pippen being injured at the start of the 97 season um, and they talked a bit about this in episode two where he could have got his surgery for his um, injured leg um, straight after the previous season ended but in a bid to try and I guess uh, negotiate like his kind of negotiating tactics because it was his last year on his contract um, and he was being severely underpaid for being one of you know the second best player in the NBA at that stage. Um, yeah, he decided not to, and as a result, that kind of saw him get stuffed around by by Jerry Krause. And of course, there was a lot of exchanges between the two. You know, so Pippen actually hurling abuse at Krause, which you know was not warranted at all, but. It just became so sour and um, so toxic in that um, in that organization, and that eventually, yeah, I guess they all did disband at the end of it, but not without the success. So, what Jerry Krause's ambition was, even though he is known for being a, an enemy of Phil Jackson or whatever, um, just they don't like each other or whatever. Um, he thought that, yeah, you know at the end of this at the end of their fifth championship that this team is getting too old they've got to look to rebuild but the team you know the guys like Michael Jordan Pippen Phil Jackson they were like well we could still win another title so we've got to win as many titles as possible whereas Krauss has this long-term vision that okay this team is getting a bit too old we've got to start rebuilding and rebuilding doesn't happen within a year or two you know you've got to um, build your draft picks and all that sort of stuff, usher in new talent, and it's it's very, it's a weird cyclical thing, um, the NBA, that, you know, you'll have patches where teams are, are really good, of course, and, you know, this team dominated for, for more than half a decade, um, and then it just, it stopped and it changed, you know, then I think, you know, the next team to really get a run was the Lakers, again with Phil Jackson as coach in the early 2000s and then um, again at the end of that decade uh, Phil Jackson and the Lakers with uh, Kobe Bryant and everything so it's a very cyclical thing NBA and this is where I'm kind of you know looking at all these the list of champions and how they end up uh, you know there's a lot of one hit wonders or whatever who win it once and then the next year they'll have a bad year kind of thing so the really good teams of course are the ones who win back to back or three peats or win you know a whole bunch in a in a short amount of time so i gotta recommend it you know anyone who's a sports fan or if you're a basketball fan i'm sure you've already watched it because it's been all over my twitter feed this week so i'm sure there's a lot of people out there waiting for the next few episodes to come out but even just as a sports fan you know it's a very good fly on the wall style documentary of course they've got the unprecedented footage access from 9798 so stuff that's been unseen since then since when it was recorded and of course now they've put it all together and uh got it ready for viewing and i'm sure it was supposed to be released a bit later but given that we've got no basketball on at the moment or any sport as a matter of fact 
it kind of um, was brought forward the release to to make sure everyone's satisfied and I think you know got quite a few people who are so yeah really looking forward to the next few episodes and learning a lot more about what happened back then so yeah well I guess that kind of wraps it up then for this week so I think you know I'm gonna be this is the hard part is committing (laughs) very very non-committal at this stage but look I said it last time or a couple of weeks ago that I may even look to switch to a bi-weekly schedule so or a fortnightly schedule so podcasting once every two weeks kind of thing so I'll leave it till next week to decide as always I'll drop a line on Twitter if I'm not going to but otherwise you will hear from me but um yeah, just so there's more to, I mean, it's, it's not like there's a shortage of things to talk about, it's just, you know, whether it's uh, it's worth coming on and uh, doing it every week, you're not kind of questioning that a little bit at the moment, but um, I really enjoyed doing it this week, I really enjoyed uh, going on Regen, so of course if you guys don't know who they are, they are a um, Formula E podcast, Electric Racing, they, they cover um, Dino and Chris, Chris unfortunately couldn't join us this morning on the show so hopefully he'll be back on on regen sometime soon over there but yeah you can follow them on twitter as well uh at regen e-racing i think it is something like that sorry dino if i didn't get your uh if you didn't get your handle right on twitter yeah or regen right at regen racing there you go so i was i was not too far off um follow those guys and listen to their podcast because it is really good and i'm really um grateful to have those guys as uh as friends of my podcast as well and um for us to be able to appear on each other's each other's show and uh talk about um whatever it is we like it's it's really fun so check those guys out and of course i'm available on it at hit the apex media on twitter so be sure to check that out and uh see what i'm up to as far as uh ramblings and musings are concerned Anyway, that's it for this week, so take care guys, remember practice safe social distancing and all that sort of stuff, wash your hands and um, I'll see you guys soon.